Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Challoner, this morning, and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Elizabeth Fox, the founder and CEO of Fox Communications, an award-winning global integrated communications agency specialising in luxury. Uh, Elizabeth, a very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you on the airwaves with us. Um, The whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, I think you'll agree with me in saying that it's posed one of the greatest challenges of our time for this generation of business leaders. But how has it affected you and your business over the uh, the last few months? Dramatically. Um, we are quite lucky. We specialise, as you mentioned, in the luxury field. So we do have a diverse client base. But uh, a lot of our clients are in the, within the hospitality and travel sector. And obviously, as you know, and we all know that they have either been shut, um, quarantined, or the the borders um, have been closed. So it has had a knock-on effect onto our business dramatically. And we were really at the front line because obviously we um, dealt with all of the crisis communication right at the beginning, and our clients are international. So it was like a domino effect. We saw um, the pandemic coming from the different countries, and we literally had to deal with each client one by one by one um, until it came to the UK, and we had a lockdown ourselves. So actually, by the time it got here, in all honesty, it was a bit of a relief to be working on our business and um, looking after my team. And um, so we, um, we we changed our, our um, communication strategy from... Uh, media outreach and promotion into crisis management. And then we had to undertake, uh, we know the luxury consumer very well, and we issue insights into this. So it was about giving our clients these insights so that they could communicate um, to their audience in the right manner. We were then responsible for all of their communication, so whether it was emailing the clients, um, the guests, whether it was updating the website, and using our communication and, and writing skills to be able to do that. And reflecting on sort of how you've managed this sort of crisis, if we call it that, um, is there anything that you've learned in your leadership capacity, either about yourself or the people working around you? Yes, I think my team have all really stepped up. Um, Working from home is not easy for everybody. Um, Some people flourish in it and some people don't. I've um, tried to keep my team motivated and um, looking forward to the future. But I think um, I've learned to be honest. Um, I've learned that a leader needs to be decisive Mm. and that we definitely need to be there at the helm um, driving it. So I've had much more interaction with my team, um, FaceTime, as well as obviously on Zoom and and Microsoft Teams that we we used. Um, 
And going forward, I think we've learned that, that people, A, are much more responsible and they will be more responsible going forward for their clients and, and the company. And um, how the company has changed with offering flexi hours, working from home, hopefully more of a work-life balance going forward. And just shifting focus ever so slightly to leadership more broadly, you've rightly mentioned that leaders have had to step up during this time in particular, but in the everyday sort of context, what does that word leader actually mean to you? What do you feel that the role of a leader is, especially within business? I think today's leader is somebody that shows strength, and as I said before, decisiveness, but also compassion and vulnerability. It's somebody that is open and shares their own um, ups and downs, I think. I mean, I can only talk about myself. I I have a daughter. I have to do homeschooling. Um, You know, I'd go on to meetings and I'd say, I'd I'd sound like the HSBC um, link where they say, people are working from home. There could be pets and and children present. Um, And being real, there's no more of this aloof, uh, we're perfect, we can handle it all. It's more... We're real, we're human, um, but we're going to take this through with you and we're going, to, we're going to guide you and you're safe and secure. And I think that safe and security blanket um, in these unnerving, as everyone calls them, unprecedented times is, um, is, is paramount. And you've talked quite a lot about, of course, providing reassurance there to the people around you and providing that sense of direction. Very important within leadership, of course. Um, but what has really been thrust into the limelight by the pandemic is the importance of mental health and well-being for various reasons, not just because of the uncertainty around health, safety and jobs, of course, but also the social isolation element of the lockdown. But mm. even before the pandemic, mental health was incredibly important within leadership. But just how important do you see it as being, both in terms of safety safeguarding your own mental well-being and also that of the people around you? Yes, I. Uh, we always wanted to have um, an internal uh, counsellor, therapist, uh, life coach, whatever you call it, somebody coming into the office. And I think that this has accelerated this. Um, so going back, when we do go back into the office next month, we will have somebody on a monthly basis to be able to talk to the, the team. I think going back will throw up as much uncertainty and anxiety as it did the change from working in the pre-normal to working from home. You know, it's all about change and with change comes uncertainty. I uh, think the importance of mental health well-being is paramount and that's why we are changing the, our philosophy of the working from home. I also think, I know everybody's talking about this working from home, working from home, it really has thrown up how my team in particular missed the interaction and connection from other people. I mean, I think everybody's fed up their teeth with Zoom. Um, and whilst we will be doing that and we will be offering working from home, and perhaps we will look at meetings thinking, do I really need to travel to that meeting? Could I do this mm. virtually? I think there will be a lot more of that. But I know that my team are missing each other, that face-to-face connection. In fact, I'm going out to go and meet one of the team members for lunch, which I've undertaken, going to go and meet everybody face-to-face, have face-to-face, one-on-one interaction with my team on a regular basis. 
And um, when we talk about, of course, what could end up happening to our working practices as a result of the uh, the pandemic, if we say if we fast forward two years and COVID-19 hopefully by then is no longer an issue and we found a cure or a vaccine for this um, infection, um, do you see the office returning in vogue or is it going to be that sort of hybrid system, you think, of maybe people being in the office two or three days a week and then working from home on a personal basis as and when required? Absolutely, I think it'll be the hybrid. Um, I think that people will still enjoy coming into town. Well, our offices are in town, but coming into that interaction, those meetings, the networking that we, we don't have, um, whether it's a large event or it's smaller one-to-one networking, that's just not happening at the moment. Um, face-to-face, it is, as I said, happening on Zoom. But I think in two years' time, there will be this hybrid model, Absolutely. It's certainly going to be an interesting time in the uh, the future, but I would like to uh, sort of backtrack a little bit before we address that in uh, more detail. Of course, um, you first sort of ventured into the PR world back in 1999, I think I'm right in saying, Elizabeth, with uh, Weber Shanwick. And then since then, you've gone on to, of course, become a, a highly professional experienced executive within the luxury sector, performing your own business nine years ago, of course. Um, but if you were to give some advice to somebody who was maybe stepping into a leadership role within an established business for the first time or even looking to start their own business, what advice would you give them based upon your experience to really get them on the road to success? I think the most salient piece of advice that I would give would be that especially running your own business um, is like a roller coaster ride and you really need to hold on tightly because there are ups and then the downs. They, they, they come often as well as the highs do and, it, and it's a brilliant utterly brilliant ride it's been there is no question in my career journey as you said I've worked for incredible companies large and small I've worked in-house I've worked um, for agencies international domestic I really have had a plethora of, of incredible experience but running Fox Communications has been without a doubt the most challenging and rewarding that I've ever come across. And what would you say have been some of the biggest inspirations and influences on you throughout your career running um, your own business? I know this sounds really cliched, but my father and my grandfather have Mm. been my inspirations. Um, My grandfather's actually a refugee um, from Germany, and he came over in the war and hid here um, in in the late 30s, early 40s. And he had nothing. He had absolutely nothing. And my father started out as a chicken farmer. And together, they built a very successful business and sold it to a big multinational company in the 80s. And I just think, I look back at the two of them, and I think if they can do it through the adversity that they had, um, that anyone can succeed. And that really inspired me to go forward. And now if we do talk about the future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, and I think those were two incredible examples, by the way, yeah, there, Elizabeth, and it just goes to show that some of the most influential leaders can be some of those people who are closest to us. Um, over the course of the next uh, year, we know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to what people are calling the new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. Um, but what is it that you're really hoping for Fox Communications to achieve over the next 12 months? And indeed, where do you see the business being this time next year? So, as I said earlier, we have um, 
we really know the luxury consumer and we um, garner some luxury insights from that. And it's going to be developing that knowledge and area so that we can best help our clients communicate authentically and relevantly to their target audience and, and really knowing and understanding them um, so that whatever their media outreach or communication is, that it, as I said, that it is relevant and, and um, empathetic to what they are going through. So we're, we're really going to be ramping that up. Um, and internationally, we have an office in New York. We're just looking to open one actually in Italy, um, so within Europe as well. So I would like to see our international remit uh, growing. We offer a global um, offering at Fox, but we have people, um, preferred affiliate companies within these markets. So I would like us to have a little bit of our own outreach within that. And yes, getting back into our lovely big offices in Covent Garden and mm. offering more flexi time, working from home, having that work-life balance. Having a It's a great place to work. I think all my team will agree, but really making it even better. And I do wish you all the luck in the world with those endeavours for sure, not just in branching out the business, but also getting everybody back into the uh, the office. And hopefully we keep our fingers crossed there won't be any variables of second waves or anything like that. Um, but just considering just how up in the air all of this still is and given how enlightening it's been having you on the programme with us today, Elizabeth, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are coming along. I would love that. I would love that. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I would really welcome the opportunity to have you back on the programme, Elizabeth. I've really enjoyed having you join us on the airwaves today as well. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Thanks, Scott, and you. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners. Do please continue to be sensible with the lifting of restrictions and think about yourself and others. It does make a real, real difference in keeping people safe and saving lives. I was speaking on today's programme to Lisbeth Fox, founder and CEO of Fox Communications. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. 
uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 or All of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the 
public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been. For, 
all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, 
adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want 
as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.